You've been led astray. I gave you a good YouTube starting point, and you quickly found you quickly found that. <laughs> <laughs> How many clicks did it take you to get to that? Actually, this is Facebook, but oh, that you started off at the bottom. Then. Do we have follow up this week? I put in the link here and how to pronounce this person's name, and I realize I haven't followed the link. <laughs> Would you like a moment? Would you like me to stall for you for a moment? Yeah, hang on a second. So, John, you didn't do your homework? No, I did. It's it's open in a tab right there. Right? I, I listened to it, and it didn't help. Oh, so it was lost. It was lost amongst your tabs, was it? Lost. It was right next to the ATP tab. Mm-hmm. He knew exactly where it was the whole time. Yep, totally. That's right. I just didn't actually click on it. The keyboard, <laughs> you can't just open the tab. You have to actually go to the thing and play it. Anyway, this feedback is from Urka, according to Google Translate, which I'm assured is accurate in this case. Um regarding the eyesight replacement for the iphone 6 plus like the, the problems that are having you can get it replaced under warranty or whatever uh this question is, is there a reason apple can't just send a notification to the affected devices why do we have to go to like a web form and enter your serial number to find out if your device is the one that has the type of problem um and i thought that was an interesting question uh because there is two aspects of it one is the technical could apple even do that and second is the uh, privacy-related one. Would Apple actually want to do that? Technically speaking, I think Apple could do that. Surely there are there is software running on iPhones that has access to the serial number information, like Apple software. Even if you know third-party apps don't, Apple's you know makes the OS so they can get that information. Um, but they would have to build that into the OS, where like periodically it. it phones home and says uh, are there any uh, relevant recalls or updates for this thing if so blah 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 and the privacy aspect one is does apple know that phone serial number xyz belongs to uh, an individual person i'm not i suppose they do because you've got the uh what do you call it find my iphone type thing but i'm not sure what apple does with that information so my answer to this feedback is they probably could uh, and I would imagine the reason they don't is that they don't have the code for that built in. And it's probably like a low priority since these recalls don't happen that often. Uh, and building it in is just like that That whole mechanism seems like it has the potential to be difficult to implement in a way that doesn't expose more information about a person to uh, to Apple. Because Apple generally doesn't want to know, wants to know as little about you as possible uh, and potentially to other things they're going to exploit whatever hole this pokes in a thing that that periodically pulls some location and, and uploads information about your phone to it so i don't know you guys have thoughts on that well you know i i think they they almost certainly could do this kind of thing if they wanted to and there there is one thing to consider also that the the quote recall or whatever it is the service extension whatever whatever technically it is um they say very they say multiple times on that page that it only applies to iPhone 6 pluses with the serial number range that are in working order and so that probably gives them the ability to say well this phone that you're handing us is all beat up and we you know we're not going to repair this this horribly beat up phone with the broken screen and the dent all over it uh, for this camera thing cuz you know you've obviously abused this phone or it isn't in good working order so it gives them like it gives them an out and there's no way for them to know on the server side, like, you know, what kind of condition your phone is in physically, really. And so they probably don't want to send this to to people whose devices are ineligible. Secondly... Oh, you think, you think they're doing it to save money? Well, 
it, at least at least to save you know a lot of requests from people who won't be satisfied. But also, they might be doing it to save money. They might actually say, you know, this is really only affecting some of these phones. And and it says it it makes it kind of clear in the, in the language on the page that in one place where it states the conditions, I believe the first time it states the conditions, it says phones that are in good working order and are exhibiting this problem. And then the second time it mentions it, it doesn't mention whether the phone has to be exhibiting the problem to have the repair done. But it looks like they're trying not to replace or not to service phones that, that don't necessarily need, quote, need it. And that could be that could be something like, well, we're only going to service the ones whose cameras are actually showing this problem, according to a genius who looks at it. Or also, it could mean, you know, we don't we're only going to service this uh, problem for people who notice the problem and who care about the problem. So it it probably is to some degree trying to minimize the number of people who even know about this problem and who go in to get things fixed and who go in and you know load the Apple stores and the repairs uh, the repair centers with even more. Uh, people and money. Yeah, that I was just about to say that it seems like it would be a tough thing to figure out. How, how let's assume they they want to notify everyone. How do you do that exactly? By that I mean, do you just send one massive notification to everyone that has an affected device? That's probably unwise because the Apple Store is going to have a pretty crummy day the next few days. Do you do it in batches? Well, then the internet eventually finds out that they're doing this in batches, and then they, you know, the internet is enraged because this iPhone issue you didn't even know you had isn't getting fixed at the schedule you would like it to be fixed, and so. It, how does that even work? It just seems like a, a nightmare. There's there's no good reason for Apple to do this. Do agree with Urka, um, but I, I just I don't think that there's anything in it for Apple, and all it does is make things kind of more challenging for them. Yeah, it doesn't seem like an urgent issue. Like as the chat room pointed out, they don't need to have the phones polling or anything. They could just do a push notification, and you know the serial number. Like when you do find my iPhone and I list all your devices, they know your devices. They have this information available to them. And the OS wouldn't need to poll. They would just need to, you know, send out a push notification uh, to all the things. But it's not like uh, batteries may explode. You need to know right now, now, now. It's more like the kind of thing that they would probably email you. And as long as you used an Apple ID, they have at least one email, you know, with your phone and set it up with an Apple ID. They have one email address. And it's the type of thing they could send out the emails. And I don't think it matters if you send all the emails at once or in batches. Because people aren't immediately going to run out. Again, it's not urgent. People immediately aren't going to run out to the store. They read their email whenever they read it. Then they look at it like, oh, half the people will forget that they read it. Other people maybe put a reminder in their calendar. I think the there won't be a big rush on Apple stores, no matter how you notify about it. And it just doesn't seem that urgent, like for this particular thing. Uh, and the money-saving aspect definitely has something to it. But yeah, the, a lot of those... A lot of these type of things, things that don't happen very often that aren't an essential expected part of the product experience tend to be done in, in not just an Apple, but in every company tend to be done in sort of ways that seem inefficient or not high tech because it's not, you know, the, the stuff that happens all the time, you know, software updates, for example, like expected parts of the life cycle of a product are iterated on and improved and made more streamlined and made efficient and so on and so forth. And these things that happen rarely or are supposed to happen rarely it's like, well, we'll just slap something together. Even something like, not that I'm excusing this, but you can think about the whole pushing the U2 album onto everyone's things. That's not a thing that happens all the time. Like, that was, as far as I know, that's the only time they ever did that. It's not as if there's an established system for doing this in a way that 
has been proven to be efficient and non-annoying. They just like probably went to them and just said, well, can we, you know, because they couldn't probably couldn't give everyone promo codes because their promo code system probably couldn't handle that because there's just too many people and they don't want to, you know, so they probably went to the people and say, what's the best way we can give everyone this for free? Can we make it free for a day on the store? Well, then people might not redeem it. And, you know, like part of it was they really wanted this music to actually be on people's things without them having to do anything. Like, in other words, you had to opt out instead of opt in. Uh, but the way that they did it was just so clumsy and ham-fisted. Uh, and at least part of that has to be part of it is just wrong-headed thinking. The other part is that it's not something they do every day. So you just got to say, with the the mechanisms and tools and services we have at our disposal, what can we do to make this happen? Um, considering they do have push notifications, they, that was that was one of the things it seems like they could have done. But then someone in the meeting will raise their hand and say, yeah, but is this really so important? And then like the bean counter guy, like Marco says, says, won't that make more people come in and try to get this service whether they need it or not? Uh, so going to a web form and entering your serial number number starts to look pretty good in that regard. Can we make a web form? Can we do that? I think so. Get that guy who knows what web objects in here. <laughs> well, and also, you know, so this this isn't a problem that is so urgent that it will cause like data loss or a physical hazard, as you said. Like, you know, there's a batteries and exploding. You know, you're like somebody in the chat was saying how um, the iMac three terabyte drive recall because. I think it was Seagate. Whoever made those three terabyte drives, like they basically all failed everywhere. It wasn't just in, in IMAX. Like that, that whole drive generation was terrible. Um, but uh, so they, they emailed people for that. But that makes sense. Like this is your data that you could be losing uh, if this drive dies. If in this case, like your photos might be blurry on your six plus if it was made in this range. By, by the way, mine was my my test six plus. The serial number qualifies, but I you know that's not going to qualify if it, if they actually checked us to have it pass. So I figure yeah, I'll worry about it later. But um, Another thing is, some some people might say, well, how do you send a push notification and, and you know, will they worry about annoying people? Um, and the answer there is they don't worry about that at all because they already spam us with push notifications for stupid things. There are three words for that one. Flash flood warning. <laughs> you ever been in an office? When a, well, I don't know if you have them down where you are. If you're in the office and there's a flash flood warning, it sounds like the world is coming to an end. Has everyone's iPhones go off with this terrible klaxon sound? Uh, so I feel like they have... I mean, that's not them, and you can opt out of that. You can turn that stuff off, you know. Well, and a few people in the chat are saying that's a legal requirement. They had to do that. Anyway, that's separate, though. What I'm talking about is those those BS push notifications from the Tips app and from the App Store and from the News app in iOS 9. You know, I've complained for a long time now that there has always been a rule. Ever since push notifications were launched, there was always a rule in the App Store review rules that said that you could not use push notifications for marketing or promotion of any kind. And not only has that rule never been enforced, ever, like there's been spam push notifications or push notifications that are for marketing or promotion only. Those have existed since the beginning of time. And very popular apps have always used them. Like, it isn't like it's only a few bad actors who do it. Like, it's common practice. Everybody does it now. And Apple has never seemed to care. Even though they have this rule, they've never seemed to even bother trying to enforce it. And now, Apple has started breaking that rule themselves. And that, like, they don't seem to care. Or, you know, obviously, you know, Apple is not one person. So certain teams obviously don't seem to care. But, like... To me, that's extremely inappropriate. Like, and and maybe it's it just seems like this is one of those things that I care a lot more about than everybody else in the world. And so maybe I'm just nuts. But to me, a spam notification is never okay, and it's especially not okay 
from the platform vendor for a notification that I was opted into by default. That is not cool at all. No, I couldn't agree more. And the tips app, I think I'd had it on my phone because it got pushed onto my phone, um, you know, during a, a software update or whatever. I think I saw one of the tips come through on notification center. And the very next thing I did was grab my phone and turn off all, all notifications from tips and bury it in the most deep folder in the middle of nowhere on my home screens, because I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want it. I don't, I don't want to be opted into it. I, I wish I was, you know, I wish it was opt in by me rather than opt in by them. Just no, go away. Don't do it. And it, again, it, like you said, Marco, it doesn't encourage an app developer to, be a good citizen of the platform if the platform vendor's doing the same BS crap that 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 I would want to do as a developer hypothetically it's just gross this is kind of a, a larger theme that I'm that I keep I keep seeing cracks in the foundation here and I'm really fearing for this uh you know John mentioned the the U2 album songs songs of innocence sounds of innocence whatever it was spam of innocence and <laughs> there's there been things like that now these, you know, certain apps showing us notifications from Apple, and it it kind of seems like Apple is, you know, Apple is a big company. They are the man. Like, you know, talking about, you know, rebelling against IBM, rebelling against the big company, rebelling against the man. Apple is the man now, and Apple is big corporate America now. And most of the time, we're able to ignore that. Most of the time, that is not a problem in, in the way that big uh, you know, self-interested only and and sometimes tasteless companies. You know the the way they usually act, the way they usually uh, annoy people like us. Usually, Apple does not display those qualities, but there have been a few instances recently where it seems like they're slipping. It, it seems like, and I don't know if this is like a Steve versus Tim thing. Probably not. Uh, but it, it seems like Apple is starting to behave more like the giant corporation that they have been for quite some time, and it's starting to to negatively affect some of the things they do uh, in ways that annoy people like us who, who in the past have, you know, Apple's never been perfect, but uh, it, it sure seems like they're, they're making little bad judgment calls more frequently now than they used to in ways like spamming us and promoting their own stuff and, you know, promoting Apple Music so heavily in iTunes and the music app that they've just ruined the entire music app and they ruined iTunes to a great degree. Stuff like that. Like, they're they're making bad calls and, and they're, they're doing things that are only self-interested rather than being self-interested that also benefit us. They ruin iTunes every few years, though. <laughs> like, I don't think this ruining of iTunes is much different than all the other times they were in iTunes. We've talked about iTunes in past shows. I think of all those things, the only one I can kind of defend is the tips app, because if there's going to be a tips app, it kind of has to be opt out. No one is going to make the whole point is you need the people who need these tips the most have no idea how to opt into it. So uh, which which OS added the thing where you can turn off notifications from the notification? Is that iOS 9? You can do that? Yeah, I thought that was in one. I I'm not keeping up with iOS stuff, but yeah, I thought that was in one of the things that, like, from the notification, you could say, "I don't want to see this, these notifications anymore," because that's part of the hassle. Is like, oh, that's interesting. You, you get the notification. Maybe I'm just misremembering. Chat room will correct me in a second if I'm wrong, but uh, if not, uh, Apple should do this. You get the notification, and even when you know how to do it, you're like, oh, I got to go back to settings, and then notifications, and then scroll until I find the thing because there's no search. Maybe there is a search on that page. Is another idea. Did they add a search to settings in iOS? Yes, yes, they did. It almost works. All right. Uh, 
people in the chat room say I'm thinking of Android. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's a feature that's that's uh, that would be handy. But for tips, that has to be opt out because the whole point of the tips is the people who need the most need to be able, and it, and it can be annoying. Even those tips can be annoying. It's one of the tips. One of the first tips should, or maybe the second tip should be, uh, don't want to see any more of these tips. Here's how you turn them off. Uh, now someone on the chat room is saying that I'm correct that you can't turn them off from the notification. Anyway, I haven't installed iOS nine yet in case you haven't noticed. Um, but yeah, all the other stuff, I don't know. It's hard for me to discern trends here. The only trend I can maybe pick out is that when jobs was still around, uh, you could, they seemed much more limited in the things they were willing to try. Like they didn't try a lot of stuff. That's true. They were very limited and you could, you could kind of, I don't know if this is actually true, but you can kind of get a feel for like things that you would imagine Steve Jobs would find distasteful didn't get out the door. Is that because he was micromanaging everything or is that because everyone around him thought to themselves, if I saw this to Steve, he'll tell me it's crappy and we, we shouldn't put it out or whatever. Whereas the Tim Cook's Apple is trying much more things. And overall, I think that's a, a benefit because we just get so many things that we've wanted for so long that, you know, I mean, just look at iOS 8 and all the other stuff. But on the other side, you have like that, we never talked about it, but that promotional site about what's so amazing about the iPhone and how app reviewers have great ideas and stuff like that like that would never have come out of uh you know if that had passed under under the nose <laughs> of steve jobs he would you know that's not the kind of bs that he he has a different brand of bs that he would like to put out and that <laughs> and that is not the correct brand of bs so i i'm i'm mostly i don't think i think it's still a uh a net positive i'm willing to deal with uh the bumps in the road here but you know a lot of these things just reveal like i said for the ability to turn off the notification uh, from the notification that's just a feature they should have um and you could say the problem is they keep sending too many notifications or the tips app annoys me or even stuff like i can't delete these apps off the phone i should be able to hide them or whatever those are exactly the type of things that tim cook's apple seems more receptive to hearing the cries about and they'll get to them eventually obviously the ability to actually hide the like the stocks app or whatever is probably really low on the list of thing of long-standing complaints about ios in terms of uh, impact and it's like well just put them in a folder that's what everyone else does but i think they will eventually get to it unlike the pre-tim cook apple where you're like you know what they're never going to let me hide the stocks app just put it in a folder no big deal yeah i don't know it, <laughs> it it seems like you know what you said is correct that it does seem like you know we've we have now a different brand of bs you know and, and steve's bs whether it was better aligned with us or whether we were just used to it or whether we just liked Steve as a character and kind of rolled it in, who knows? Well, it was a personification. Like, we're we're pretending it's Steve's BS. All it was was Apple's BS when Steve was the CEO. And so everything was, like, mapped onto him. It's like, well, I don't know what actually went on inside the company, so I'll pretend this was Steve Jobs' idea. Like, that was just the simple the, the external simplification of the black box that was Apple. And same thing we're doing with, like, Tim Cook's Apple or whatever. We have no real way of knowing what's going on internally. All we're doing is trying to, you know, you just said, you know, Apple's not one person, but we, you know, we're modeling it. Pretend it's a person. What is the personality of that person? What kind of person is this Apple, you know? Well, and, you know, it. so many big corporations behave like the out-of-touch men in their 50s who run them. And it shows. And Apple has been run by men in their 50s for a while now. Uh, but it it really didn't behave that way. It didn't seem that way. They didn't seem as out of touch as that kind of group usually does uh, to people like us. Uh, but 
for some reason now I'm not feeling that confident in that anymore. It, it's just it does seem like that has changed without Steve, or at least in the same time that that Steve unfortunately passed away and the leadership changed and everything. Um, it 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 now seems more like what it is, which is a group of old guys trying to trying to figure out what's cool and trying to like kind of yell at us now to tell us what's cool. Just hang in there, Marco. Soon you'll be an old guy in his 50s, and then everything will all match up again, and you'll be happy. Right. Well, I mean, I'm already not cool, and I'm only 34, 33, 33. I'm only th- <laughs> I never know. I got I to figure it out every time. I'm already not cool. I know that. But I would, I would not be running something where I have to decide important things that other people should think are cool. <laughs> it's not coolness. It's just about taste. That's what it always comes down to is like what – what seems uh, a tasteful, appropriate thing to do? What's too flashy? What's too flamboyant? What's too obviously BS? Like, make your BS at least be clever. What is actually inspiring versus what is cloying? Like, it's it's difficult to do. It's difficult to do as an individual, let alone trying to herd a giant multi-billion dollar organization to present a face to the world that most people who look on it decide that it is tasteful and the things they do are tasteful. Like, that's a tall order, so. It is, but, like, like the things that we've seen from Apple in in recent time that that have seemed distasteful to us things like you know the spam of innocence things like the weird presentations they keep giving and the weird eddie q segment and the apple music segment and everything like all this stuff you know it's this is this seems like they're they're letting a lot of things out that you know steve's brand of bs and, and the thing and the flaws steve will let out would be things like Oh yeah, the iPod Hi-Fi, that's totally going to be an awesome deal and people are going to buy it. You know, like that that was like Steve's kind of BS. Like and then the game was figuring out, does he really like the iPod <laughs> Hi-Fi? Probably he does because he if he didn't like it, why would he even be introducing it? He didn't like the Motorola Rocker and we could tell. Right. It kind of seemed like he really liked the iPod Hi-Fi and I guess it was okay, but the rest of the world did not like the iPod Hi-Fi, except for Jason Snell, who loves it. But everyone else. <laughs> but, like, yeah, like, sometimes people, like, sometimes Steve thought something would, or at least seemed to think something would be a great success and that people would have no problem with its price or limitations. And then the market said very clearly otherwise. That was Steve's, I think that, that was Steve's biggest mo- or most common flaw in judgment. Whereas now, current Apple, we have other flaws in judgment that are very different and to me a little more worrisome. And maybe it's no big deal. You know, maybe maybe I'm overthinking it. That's very possible. But don't you think it's offset by the other the other changes in judgment of like, is it a good idea for apps to have extensions uh, or, or to have third party keyboards uh, setting aside the really buggy implementation? Uh, the new Apple says yes. The old Apple says no. I like the new Apple decision better. I think that outweighs all of this stuff. I think you're right, and and that's why, like overall, you know, I, I think Apple is in a better position now than they were, say, five years ago. You know, overall things are better. Not you know, not everything is better, but overall, I think you're right. The things are better. It's still, it seems like, you know, we we all thought that after Steve, Apple, you know, we were all telling ourselves back then. Um, you know, Apple will be okay. You know, it, it it maybe maybe it won't change very much. But I think what we're seeing is is how it how it has changed, and it isn't all for the better. And there are a lot of things that are better. But obviously, like you can't have such an incredibly strong personality who had tons of power. You you can't have that kind of person at the top of the company who then leaves, and nothing changes. You know, like the, it, it it was never going to be nothing will change, and it was never going to, and it, it was never realistic to think that. 
the things that we loved about Apple would all survive this transition. Some of them haven't. And, and I think that's a little sad. Yeah. Um, we really need to talk about something that's awesome. But very, very quickly, I just wanted to apologize for all the people who have been writing me saying, oh, my God, now I see a crescent on my iPhone. What have you done? Uh, sorry, guys. But welcome to the club. <laughs> anyway, uh, wanted to tell us about something that's cool, Marco. Our first sponsor this week is Harry's. Go to harrys.com and use promo code ATP to save $5 off your first purchase. Harry's offers high-quality razors and blades for a fraction of the price of the big razor brands. They make their own blades from their own factory, which they bought. It's an old blade factory in Germany. They liked it so much they bought it. These are high-quality, high-performing German blades crafted by shaving experts, giving you a better shave that respects your face and your wallet. They offer factory direct pricing at a fraction of the big brand's price. Harry's blades are about half the price. Plus, you don't have to wait around for some guy to come unlock the case in the, in the drugstore or whatever. They ship them directly to your door. The starter set is an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream or gel, your choice, and three razor blade cartridges. When you need more blades, they're just $2 each or less. An 8-pack is just 15 bucks. A 16-pack is just 25 bucks. You try to buy 16 Gillette Fusion blades, which I think are probably the most comparable uh, blades, it's $56. Harry's, $25. It's incredible how much cheaper these things are. It's, again, less than half the price in almost every case. Uh, I've been a huge shaving nerd before. I've tried everything from DE Safety Blades, from the Feather and all the other fancy brands, all the way up to you know the, the, the Fusion Pro Glide and everything else from the Gillette line. And I can tell you, Harry's is by far the best value in the business. No question. And I would say the quality is very, very similar in, in almost every possible way to Gillette Fusion Blades. Um, and the Harry's handles look way better. Just everything about Harry's is so much classier. It's a better experience buying it. They have great support if you ever need it for any any order help or anything it is it is impossible to to overstate the difference in quality and experience uh, and design between harry's and the other big brands so check it out go to harry's.com use promo code atp to save five dollars off your first purchase get a starter set today with a handle three blades and shaving cream for just fifteen dollars including free shipping right to your door harrys.com promo code atp thanks a lot all right um i wanted to quickly talk about uh something i've been thinking about on and off uh, all day today and we've been talking a lot about force touch and kind of ten- tangentially the haptic engine um and w- how it would be used on the iphone and something that had occurred to me and i don't recall us talking about this what if it was opt-in, kind of like iPad multitasking gestures, you know, the, the five-finger pinch and the uh, four-finger swipes? What if it was opt-in? And so it all the confusion that we were worried about from normal users that had never experienced Force Touch before and don't really know what it's all about, what if it was optional? Like, would that be a reasonable solution to the problem? I'm still not sure what it would be do necessarily but maybe it's an optional long press but like like you were saying uh, before marco on a prior episode but but the key is that it's opt-in and by default it doesn't do anything you can't market it that way though if they're going to put a force touch in the screen you can be pretty darn sure that they're gonna it's going to be one of the the uh, very high up bullet point features of the iphone 6s or whatever they end up calling it and if it's opt-in, people are going to get it and say, I saw the TV ad where they did this thing. How do I do that thing? Oh, you got to go to settings. You got to, I, I feel like it can't possibly be opt-in just for marketing reasons. That is assuming they even tell you that it's there. If they don't mention it and decide this is not going to be a marketing feature, 
that would seem weird to me. Like, why build the sensors in and not... Like, usually there there aren't that many marketing features for the S revision phones because it's going to look the same as the other one and they maybe change the materials and tweak this and tweak that. But it's not like, oh, this one has, you know, Touch ID. It's uh, That's the type of feature that you get when the whole phone changes shape in the, you know, the sort of two-year cadence that Apple's on right now. So any kind of feature that you can say you know, that you added an S revision year, I think I feel like they really want to tout it. So I, I cannot imagine it being opt-in unless they really, really, really couldn't figure out what the hell to do with Force Touch on the phone. And they're like, eh, if we can't figure out what to do with it, we should just leave it in kind of experimental mode for now. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, the other thing I I was thinking about is what if what if they don't do Force Touch but still have the haptic engine. So uh, what if it's not about pushing, quote-unquote, through the display? It's not about having different interaction paradigms from user to phone, but it's about having a different interaction paradigm phone to user. So maybe it's like the rumble pack was to us back when we were playing Nintendo games. That's for you, John. Um, when, When the rumble pack was new, it's sort of like that where it's a different... It's a different response mechanism, but maybe there isn't a force touch on the phone. Well, they already have that. Like, the vibration motor is already in there. I saw a couple of people tweeting about this. They're like, well, they can make it so you can feel when you rub over a certain thing. I don't think they're going to put a different physical thing that shakes your phone inside the phone. I think there's going to be one thing that shakes your phone. Maybe that thing will be changed slightly to give different kinds of feedback, but it's still just going to be one thing. It's the thing that makes your phone vibrate when you put it on silent. It's the thing that, that you know, that's going to do any kind of haptic feedback. That doesn't require any, you know, anything more than just a plain old touch sensor. The force sensor, the whole point of that is to give a more accurate reading of how hard you're pressing on the screen, more accurate than seeing how much your finger squishes, which I think is not the the best way to do that. So if they're going to build that in, if they're going to put those little sensors in there, uh, I feel like it has to be a combination of now we can tell how hard you're pressing and now we can press you back by wiggling the little whatever little thing they have in there that vibrates the phone. Um, and yeah, we'll just have to see what they decide to do with it. It's the type of thing they have to be careful with because you usually don't get a chance to totally, you know, take a mulligan on a major uh, input device or whatever, like double clicking, whether that was a, a smart move or not. It's really difficult. You can't go like three years into the Mac and say, you know what? Double-click doesn't mean open anymore. We changed our mind. In fact, there's no more double-click, or double-click means something entirely different. In the world of touch, maybe you get a little bit of chance. Like you mentioned, that the gestures that are opt-in on the iPad, but those are... Like, someone thought that was a good idea. That's another one that kind of leaked out. Someone thought that was a good idea, but then other people immediately realized if you try to play Fruit Ninja with it, you'll end up going back to the home screen all the time. So their solution was not, let's not ship that feature until we figure out how to make it work. Their solution was, all right, off by default. People can turn it on if they want. And it's a shame because that gesture is so addictive on the iPad, um, but you really can't play Fruit Ninja with it. So I don't know what they do there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the story here is probably very boring. It is probably not anything super clever. It is probably Force Touch is Force Touch. It's advertised as Force Touch. It is some kind of, you know, tertiary, secondary click that will bring up some kind of secondary tertiary function and there will be some kind of API to access this gesture. You know, like I, I think that we're, th- we're overthinking it. I really think this is just, 
it's going to be a feature added because they can. You know, somebody at Apple clearly really loves force touch. Like somebody who who matters a lot clearly loves it. And maybe it's multiple people who matter a lot. Well, uh, you, you can see on the watch why they kind of had to do it because they needed more more input methods. Like it's they- on the watch, it makes sense. I, I don't. You know, I, I've obviously said this a lot. I don't think it makes a lot of sense in the trackpads and and. If it makes sense in just the MacBook One trackpad for thinness reasons, okay. Although, is it really like? I don't, I've never listened to it, but like I was thinking on my dog walk today because that's where I do all my thinking. Uh, is it really thinner to have the whole linear actuator and everything down there? That's thinner than a, than a button. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, putting it in all of the laptops, I think is. Uh, it was maybe premature uh, or or unwarranted, but well, so so far most of the feedback from the youngsters is be is like Marco is an old man and we all love this better. And yeah, I guess this is my old man phase now, beginning of my life. That I, but uh, I, I think it's not really because I think uh, several years from now you'll be okay with it and you'll go back and use one of the ones, but that had the button then moved and it will feel broken to you. Like oh, the the whole thing tilts down. It's very possible. I, I, I and I said before like. I don't hate the Force Touch trackpad. I just think it's worse than the current than the old one. And you know, I'm not going to not buy a new laptop ever again to avoid it. But I'm certainly I don't think I'm going to love it when I have to make the transition. You, you should circle back to bagging on the keyboard because I think that is a more safe, <laughs> a more safe uh, redoubt for you to uh, to build your uh, argument. Right. Well, it doesn't matter anyway. So you know the the addition to for, of Force Touch. Obviously, they're putting this across the whole product line. I think this is maybe yet another thing that that kind of ties into what I was saying earlier, which is like, I, I think that this is really going to be lost on so many people. I mean, it's already, you know, I, I, I already think that they've blown the execution on the Mac side, uh, where you know, making it a a tertiary click is weird. Making designing it in such a way that the click feedback that you get feels noticeably worse then the old button, I think, was was a poor choice. If they had a choice, they might not have. Who knows? Um, and on the phone, if if everything we're hearing from various you know tip sources uh, is correct, that it is just like a right click, and it's you know another another level of interaction of oh well you got you got to go around like shoving everything on the screen to see what it can do. Like that's that kind of sucks. Like I it'll it'll be useful i think for games and for like there was a good discussion on this on uh, upgrade this week we'll link to that um well by the time you guys hear this upgrade last week and uh, it was very good and they were pointing out you know this could really be useful for games uh, of having like a different wait for, wait for the first person to have the test your strength game to try to see if they can get people to punch their thumbs through their phone screens you know <laughs> press harder oh you haven't you haven't done it yet keep going yeah it's probably really easy to max out the sensors so i guess you can't do that but that would be fun well and also if Apple enforces their app store rules anymore, uh, <laughs> which is a big if these push notifications. There is a rule against uh, apps that uh, encourage people to damage their devices. I think it'll be pretty easy to max out the four sensors, so I don't think you can make a game like that anyway. But Well, people will try. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, that I think it's going to be a really kind of boring new feature that's not going to set the world on fire in, in the same way that the Mac Force Touch trackpads have been. I, I still think like if it's easy to do, even if they can't figure out a use for it yet, uh, I think there is a potential use for it. And as long as they don't go hog wild with it, making like every screen that's part of the OS has and every control has something that you can force touch. It can't be like a mystery meat navigation. It can't be like playing mist where you have to be like, <laughs> do I tap this? Do I double tap this? Do I long press it? Do I force touch it? It's it really they really need to 
figure out what they're going to do with it in their apps anyway. And then like third parties can dig their own graves. Like if they want to have, you know, if Marco wants to have like, oh, you don't know, you have to go into uh, settings and don't tap the switch, but force touch it. Like no one's going to do that. And if they do, that's their own stupid fault. So if they make the API open enough and you can do that now with like, oh, you got a long press that control. You can't just tap it. What do you mean long press? I don't know what a long press is, but you know, they can do that. But Apple needs to set the example by just using it. And I think they did okay on the map, like on the Mac, like, uh, fast forward and rewind for the video thing of a quick time player that is a very specific very focused use of force touch that is not like we're defining a new language that you can use in every app go into a finder window and press down and it will zoom in on the window or your fi- or your icons will slide to the left or the right they didn't do that there so i think it's just you know finding the one or two places where you can use it it actually is kind of cool and then not looking in other apps and saying where can i use force touch like if you find yourself doing that you're probably doing it wrong Our second sponsor this week is Warby Parker. Warby Parker believes that prescription glasses simply should not cost $300 or more. They bypass the traditional channels and sell high-quality, better-looking prescription eyeglasses online at a fraction of the usual retail prices, starting at just $95. Go to warbyparker.com slash ATP to see more. Their designs are vintage-inspired with a contemporary twist. Every pair is custom-fit with anti-reflective, anti-glare, polycarbonate prescription lenses. And every pair comes with a very nice hard case and cleaning cloth, so you don't need to buy any overpriced accessories. Warby Parker now offers progressive lenses starting at just $2.95, including the frames. Progressive lenses have a distance prescription at the top, and they transition to a reading lens near the bottom. And these are digital freeform progressives, which is the most advanced progressive technology with higher precision and a larger field of vision than traditional progressive lenses. Now, buying glasses online sounds like it would be very risky. How would you know whether they'll fit, how they'll look on you? Warby Parker has you covered. First of all, their website has a very helpful tool that uses your computer's webcam to give you a preview of how the glasses will look on your face. It can even help you measure your eyes and face to get the fit exactly right. But the best part is their home try-on program. You can borrow up to five pairs of glasses risk-free that they will ship to you also for free. You can try them on in the comfort of your own home for five days. Then you can send them back with a prepaid return label, again, free, and there's no obligation to buy, still free. So check out the home try-on program. It is awesome. They also offer prescription and non-prescription polarized sunglasses. And this is a great price, even for the non-prescription ones, believe me. Now, Warby Parker also believes in giving back to the world. For every pair of glasses they sell, they give another pair to somebody in need through various vision charities around the world. So go to warbyparker.com ATP and check out their great selection of premium quality affordable eyewear. Get yourself a home try-on kit risk-free. And we, I think all three of us have either ourselves or family members who have used Warby Parker glasses and are very happy with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is great. Everyone loves Warby Parker who uses them. Check it out. Warbyparker.com slash ATP. Thanks a lot to Warby Parker for sponsoring our show. Okay. So by the time most people have heard this, this news is going to be a week or two old. But um, a little while ago, there was a really... um, kind of ugly uh, article posted uh, uh, by the New York Times about Amazon and their what it's like to work there and their company culture and their hiring practices. And it made a pretty big splash. And the short, short version of the article was it's terrible to work there. But I don't know. I, I only had a chance to read about the first half of it. And even after having read that much, I thought, my goodness, I would never, ever want to work at this place. Because among many other things, I like to see my family once every 16 years. Um, I don't know. John, 
how would you summarize this and what did I leave out? Because I know that there was a lot in this article. It was long. So the badness about Amazon is basically that they expect you to dedicate yourself, mind, body, and soul to the company, to work very long hours, to put your job before your family and your health and the rest of your life, to just really, you know, be sort of in uh, full throttle mode all the time for the company. And if you can't do that, and if you're not super smart and not able to do a million things at once and have lots of work heaped on you, then you're not, you know, the the idea is like that... Amazon is a demanding place to work. They want they only want the smartest people who get the most done and the, the best, hardest workers. And they're very, you know, trying to make it, they would probably call it like a culture of excellence where they do the thing where they try to rank everybody and push out the low performers to make room for supposedly the new people. Um, and the New York Times story was just horror story after horror story of how that, you know, what people think of as work-life balance is just, so far out of kilter at Amazon, all sorts of stories about people being asked to do things that are just, you know, beyond the pale for the purposes of the work, being told explicitly that work has to be more important than their family, working really long hours and just all sorts of stuff like that. And, and you know, the flip side of it, I think that this New York Times story was the, according to someone, someone from New York Times, I think tweeted that it was the story that got the, the highest number of comments ever on a New York Times story. Because everyone who either currently works at Amazon or had previously worked at Amazon wanted to say, I, you know, here's my story working at Amazon. Either I have my own horror stories or, either I, or I work there and it wasn't like that at all. Or I work there and my group was good, but I know other groups that were like this. Lots of people, and not just on the New York Times, but everywhere around the web are throwing in their own, uh, you know, stories about Amazon. Because Amazon is a big company. A lot of different people have worked there. Um, And I think the most interesting part of this, uh, well, I guess if you didn't know this is what it was like in Amazon, and by the way, this is what it's like in a lot of companies, also particularly startups, although it's a little bit more appropriate for it to be that way in startups, because in startup it's like lots of hard work, but also potentially lots of reward, whereas Amazon's so big that at this point, you could work yourself to death and it's not like you're going to be a, a multimillionaire off your stock options in a few years. Whereas in a startup, you have a vanishingly small chance of doing that, but at least it's a chance. Yeah, um, that's often overstated. I know, but it, like it's it's non-zero. Like the whole thing, Amazon is still operating as if it's like, oh, you're going to get all these options in the stock and blah, blah, blah. But that's like, if you're going to work yourself to death for a company, make it be your startup. Like the startup that you founded, that you have equity in, that you're going to get rich off of if it succeeds, that you're going to be ruined if it fails. That, I think, is the only sort of reasonable way. And even that is probably not a great idea because almost all startups fail. And so, you know, but if you want to give it a run, that is the thing to do. Your company, your thing. Amazon is not going to be your company. You are probably not going to get rich off Amazon stock. Probably don't want to work yourself to death. But anyway, some people are workaholics. Some people like that. Some people thrive in that atmosphere. Some people don't have families. Some people do want to dedicate themselves to their job. Um, so there's two sides to this story here depending on how you look at it. But the most interesting part was the reaction of, you know, because Amazon's got to do damage control because they're going to have lots of difficulty recruiting because now everyone thinks Amazon is a terrible sweatshop, which, by the way, it is probably, and especially much more so for blue-collar workers rather than the white-collar people who are writing their code or running their websites or whatever, and no one seems to care about that. But anyway, uh, (laughs) setting setting that aside, uh, how do you pronounce his last name? Bezos? Bezos? I can never get it right. Bezos. Anyway, Jeff Bezos, CEO of Amazon. Uh, put out this statement, uh, and the little things I pulled from it is uh, these two little passages. I don't recognize this Amazon. He's talking about the Amazon as described in the New York Times. This article doesn't describe the Amazon I know. And I love that aspect of this thing that he's writing, 
because all he's doing is restating the problem. I'm totally sure that he doesn't recognize that Amazon because his the experience of Amazon for the CEO is not like this at all. He's probably a workaholic <laughs> and he probably works himself to death, but he's the CEO. He stands to gain the most from it and he's working like crazy because he's a workaholic and that's what he likes to do. His work-life balance is exactly the way he wants it. Like, this is what he made for himself. Of course he doesn't recognize this Amazon. You don't recognize this Amazon because you're not a lowly Amazon employee being told to work yourself to death for no payoff. You're a multi-bazillionaire who is a workaholic like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or any of these other people because that's what's in them and they're driven to do that. And I'm sure there are employees of Amazon who are like that as well. They're not going to get their rewards from it. But again, some people just thrive in that type of atmosphere. But the reason this works as a New York Times story is most people do not thrive in that atmosphere. And to most people, this reads like a horror story. And so you read it and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe what it's like. Now, I, now if I ever had an idea that I was going to work for Amazon, I'm definitely not going to work there now because I read this article and the things that I hear happening, that's like my nightmare of the worst possible job I could ever have. Most people are going to have that attitude. Um, and that's why I would try, if I had to sit down with Jeff Bezos, I would try to sit down and say, look, I don't know a lot about a lot of people, but I think I know a little bit at this point about uh, professional programmers. And if ever there was an employee less inclined to be into the sort of gung-ho, uh, just work, 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 uh, stay in the office at late hours, grinding, grinding, grinding. It is the programmer for a giant Fortune 500 company. Because programming, I think, is one of those type of things where uh, Balmer, the Balmer curve aside, we could put a link in that in there. It's one of those things where... Balmer peak. Balmer peak, yeah. Where you can't, like, the harder you work and the more you grind, the worse you program. Like, you have to have times of rest to think about things. You have to walk the dog, like Marco said. You have to take a shower. Like, that's where you actually solve all your programming powers is in the shower, while you're walking the dog, while you're sleeping. Sometimes you wake up in the morning, it's in your head. If you stay late one night and try to work on this thing and work, 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 work for like five extra hours, it, there's no there's no point. It's specifically for programming. And they hire, not that everyone they hire is a programmer, but... If you are going to say, we only want you to work here if you thrive in this type of atmosphere, you're going to be missing out on on a lot of really, really great programmers. Because in my experience, great programmers tend to be less uh, receptive to that type of work environment, mostly because I think it's not it's not conducive to good programming, than, for example, salespeople. If you want to find the world's best salesperson, I bet they do thrive in this type of environment because it's, sales is all about go, 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 right? And they're, you know... They're, they're go-getters. They're going to get the job done. They're going to put in long hours. They're going to do the business travel and all that stuff. That's not how programming works. So I don't know about all the other positions that they're filling in marketing and, and other things that are outside engineering. And again, setting aside the blue-collar workers that are being exploited in the factories, packing packages in 100-degree heat in a building where the air conditioning doesn't work, where Amazon thoughtfully provides ambulances outside so when the workers drop dead, or don't drop dead, but collapse on the line, that they're whisked outside to the ambulance, that... That is a whole separate issue, and that is terrible. So really, just to put this in perspective, what we're talking about is like highly paid programmers being asked not to see their kids, not people being asked to work in 100-degree heat in a factory and collapsing from the heat and being taken to company-sponsored ambulances outside. But anyway, um, I think this is just a bad business decision. That This is not the way that you should run uh, a company of Amazon size. This is not the way you should manage an organization that is focused on engineering. Um, and they would say back to me, uh, our company is incredibly successful. Look at the amazing things that we've done. 
we're a giant retailer. We do all these things like S3 and EC2, and you think we're great at services. And the reason we're like that is because we have this attitude. And I would say, no, you do that be- despite that attitude. And then I would make him recreate Creativity Inc. and learn that success hides problems. Then we would go back and forth. And in the end, he would do what he wants because he owns the company and I have a podcast. But anyway, <laughs> now that we've played out that little thing. You have many podcasts. Well, that's right. I have multiple podcasts. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Don't undersell yourself. Right. Wow. Uh that were that was my thoughts coming out of this and so i think it's good for stories like this to be in the media to sort of raise awareness of this because i don't know if marco's ever been in a job like this but i don't think i've ever been in a job like this either but i've been i've been adjacent to jobs like this i've known people in jobs like this i've seen parts of organizations that i've been in that are like this and it really is my worst nightmare like i would never want a job like this uh and i i, I know a lot of people who who wouldn't uh, if they could possibly help. And that's the thing about hiring engineers and programmers. They can get work elsewhere. So uh, if you don't have a, uh, a stock that is going to have the potential to skyrocket in the near future, it's going to be difficult to attract those people if you're going to work them like this. My first job out of school was working for a company that uh, actually made slot machines for uh, Native American casinos in Oklahoma. And the company at the time was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 developers, and they were all, um, they were all ex-EA folks. Like, well, they're, they, they were part of a company that was bought by EA, and then EA ruined it as EA is off to do. Um, and so these were guys, generally, uh, actually, there were no women there at the time that were developers. So they were all guys. They were typically in their late 30s, early 40s, generally speaking, completely single. And generally speaking, didn't really have a whole lot else to do other than work. And not that they weren't great, great, great guys. And I, I don't mean that disparagingly. It's just the fact of the matter was they, they didn't have um, spouses or children. And many of them didn't seem to have a whole lot of hobbies other than work. And so they worked constantly, just constantly. And here it was, I came in fresh faced and, you know, right out of school and I didn't want to work constantly. I didn't want to work nonstop. And I left the company um, mostly because I had been asked to do this really kind of impossible project before a trade show. And I worked, I I don't remember now, but I want to say it was 11 or 12 hours a day for like a month or two, um, including most weekend days, trying to get this thing to work. And I eventually did get it to work. And then the trade show came and they were preparing everything they were going to show and then just decided, you know what, we're not going to show that after all. And I was furious. I was beyond furious because here it was, I busted my butt for all that time. And it was like, eh, well, we don't need it after all. Thanks though. And I don't know, maybe that makes me a millennial in the, in the disparaging way. Maybe that makes me not a team player, but I just thought it was ridiculous that here it was, I couldn't do any of the things I wanted to do for a month. And then they just up and decided, oh yeah, we don't need that after all. And I left the company. You should not get a a job in the games industry. Oh, totally. No, you're absolutely (laughs) right. You are absolutely right. But I didn't know any better at the time. Yeah. Well, that's part of, uh, part of that, I think is, again, speaking to programming, which is the profession that I think we're all the most familiar with even Marco, uh, in, 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 <laughs> in large companies, is that that experience of having like a miniature version of, of what the game developers call crunch time, uh, where something needs to ship and people, everyone puts in long hours and it's all hands on deck. I think every programmer goes through that, even if only on their own projects for like fake artificial deadlines that they made for themselves, but certainly in other companies where you have a software product or a release or a trade show or something and everyone is 
killing themselves to uh, to uh, make a deadline. That experience, I think, is formative for programmers because it teaches you, like, it makes you, it, it's difficult, you know, it's probably the most grueling physical thing that programmers have to do because programming is not a grueling physical job. You know, you're not cracking rocks with a hammer all day. You're pressing keys on a keyboard and sitting in a chair, right? But it does take its toll on you in terms of lack of sleep or even just sitting in a chair all day or not eating well and, you know, never mind seeing your family or whatever. Like, say you don't have that. You're just, you know, a single person right out of college. Um, what I think you learn from that is you reflect on it after the experience, which hopefully ends in whatever trade show or whatever, and you say, what is it about the piece of software that we were creating together that made it so difficult to do, do the thing we wanted to do? Um, like how, you know, it's the stupid cliche that you see on all the posters work smarter, not harder, but in programming, like there's actually a, something behind that, which is if you had done your earlier work differently, how would it have made your later work easier? If you, you know, and that's that's basically all programming is. Like you write the program, then you realize how you should have written it. The next time, if you're lucky enough to write a similar program, you write it in the better way, and then you realize how you shouldn't have written it differently. And the next time you realize you have uh, have made it easy to change along these axes, but did not realize that this other axis was the one that it's going to change along. So now it's really hard to change in that way. Like that's all programming is, is doing something and realizing how you could have done it differently to make the future changes that you have to make for whatever reason easier to make. Yep. And so crunch time and that, you know, that hellish experience of just having to sit there and just grind yourself into dust to try to get work done teaches you how to do your job better a little bit. But I think it also teaches you how incredibly inefficient it is to bang your head against that wall. That how if you had merely gone home at a reasonable hour and had a full night's sleep and come in the next morning, you would have solved this problem faster and better. I think that's another thing you learn during crunch. And that gets back to the uh, this article that I think, I don't even know if it was related to the Amazon thing. I don't remember. It was so long ago. I put these links in here. But it's from uh, Dustin Moskovitz talking about how the 40-hour work week is not a, uh, you know, he says it's not a uh, a, comp- a great compromise between capitalism and hedonism. Um, it's actually a carefully considered outcome, I'm quoting from this thing, of profit-maximizing research by Henry Ford in the early part of the 20th century. Basically, if you... If you're running this experiment and say, "Hey, if we if we work people 80 hours 80 hours a week versus 10 hours a week versus 20, like there is a maximum where you get the most productivity out of people. If you work them like crazy, they get tired, they get sloppy, they get angry, they do worse work. They are less productive. And of course, if you have them work one hour a week, your output is not good. So that you're trying to find not that 40 hours is some magic number or whatever, but you're trying to find that the the maximum where you get the most productivity out of people on a sustained basis. If you drive people like dogs, maybe you'll get extra productivity out of them, but you'll pay for it later. And if you want to have a sustained business, like maybe that's why you didn't start. Like there will be no sustained business if we don't kill ourselves for these two weeks leading up to this trade show. So you kill yourself leading up to the trade show. Again, I would say make sure you're killing yourself for a potential payoff that's going to benefit you, not somebody else, because it's not worth killing yourself for somebody else to get rich. But um, you, you want to find a way to get the most out of people on a sustained basis and usually that ends up being a work week and a work environment especially for programming it does not look scary from the outside that you work reasonable hours that you get a good night's sleep that you get exercise that you eat right that is the only way in any human endeavor to have sustained productivity out of people Um, and programmers are not like people breaking rocks with hammers in that if you uh, grind one of them into dust and they leave the company with rsi or have a nervous breakdown or do something else terrible 
it's not so easy to just find another one. It's not just like a warm body in a chair where you just need ballast for your giant barge, right? It's supposedly a highly skilled job. And so if you're grinding up those workers and spitting them out, uh, that's even worse than if you're doing the same thing. It's worse economically, if not morally speaking, than doing the same thing for a position where if people get disgruntled and leave, you can easily find new applicants for it. Well, so that's something that I, I think you... I, I think that actually is partly the case that the that the industry does have so many like you know the right thing to do from our perspective because the three of us are all pretty experienced programmers who are approaching middle age who we'd like to think are wise and care about spending time with our families right and so we are the ones saying you know to do things with higher quality you should really have wiser older programmers who are more experienced who will therefore work way more efficiently than young crappy programmers who who are being worked 80 hours a week but there are so many of those young programmers willing to go work for companies like amazon which by the way i mean this story to me was nothing new because i've heard horror stories about how horrible working for amazon is for years i don't i don't think this is a surprise to anybody who's ever paid attention to amazon and, and people who work there um but you know, I think there's enough people willing to go into this business uh, to go work for a big company or, or a startup. Like there, there's enough input of new new computer science graduates or new people who are who are teaching themselves programming who want a job all over the world. Uh, there's enough of these people coming in. It's kind of like the entertainment business where the the employers are able to abuse and and burn people out. And, you know, they're, they're able to do this because there's, there is still a huge supply. You know, the way they always complain and, and make a bunch of noise about how there's a shortage of good programmers in this country is, I think, mostly BS. I think it's totally true. There is a shortage of good programmers. You didn't say shortage <laughs> of programmers. You said a shortage of good programmers. Like, the, your, your analogy to the entertainment industry is exactly right. Because that's why the game, that's why games development is so bad. Because everybody wants to be a games developer. Hey, doesn't that sound fun? And companies take advantage of that enthusiasm. Oh, you know, there's a million applicants for this thing. Because you get to be a game developer. You get to make games. Isn't that awesome? Now they grind you into dust. And when you burn out, there's another enthusiastic person knocking at the door. I want to be a games developer. Games are awesome. Let's grind you up. And, but Amazon is not an entertainment company. Amazon, I don't think, has that kind of draw. So then you're just left with the generic draw of, I want to be in the tech industry, which is better than, you know, you know, working in the mailroom at a Fortune 500 company and certainly pays better, but it's nothing compared to the games industry or, like you said, the entertainment industry. I want to be in TV. I want to be in movies. Like, that is a perfect opportunity to grind up enthusiastic, naive people. But I just think the supply of programmers is... It's more difficult to find, you know, like I said, good programmers. Now, maybe Amazon has the right strategy. We would rather grind into dust tons of programmers and not even use them the most efficiently. And the ones that survive will learn really hard lessons and become amazing, you know, efficient people. And the ones that don't, oh, well, they'll leave and get a job someplace else, but we'll just scoop up a set of new graduates. Maybe that, in aggregate, gives them better throughput than trying to find programmers and give them a nice environment to work or whatever i don't know because google seems to me takes the other attitude where they try to give you know they try not to work people to death they try to give people uh you know room to figure out what it is they're going to do and it's like a nice work environment and apple kind of seems in the middle where they don't tell you what they're doing but from my understanding is that people at apple work super duper hard and i worry that apple is grinding them up uh but you can't really tell because i think the screams are muffled by whatever (laughs) 
giant <laughs> umbrella that and and apple the reason apple thing gets away with it is because they're more like the entertainment industry i don't just work in the tech industry i work for apple i make iphones well i i think that used to be the case for a long time but i think now they're having a really big problem attracting and retaining good talent and there's lots of reasons for this and one of them i think is this problem of they do work people really hard. From from what we've heard, it sounds like they really do work people harder than what I would consider healthy. And they consider that okay from from levels all the way to the top. And so and this is the kind of thing like once workaholism sets into a company's culture, it never leaves. That it is something that is so incredibly difficult or impossible to ever roll back. It only ever gets. T- it's like being tough on crime. You know, it's like politicians it can never be less tough on crime. Like it's the same thing. Like there's there's so many factors that just encourage it to build upon itself and to increase the the workaholism rather than ever tone it back. And it's you know so. In Apple's case, you know, it's pretty clear from from anecdotes from the executives all the way down to, you know, the employees that this is just how the company works. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. Uh, and that is that is one of the problems that is going to make it hard for Apple to attract and retain good talent over time. And, you know, and you mentioned a few times so far, John, you mentioned um, that startups are kind of exempt from this. And, and I don't I don't necessarily think that's true. Now, not, not exempt, but it's a better fit. Like that, that like to get a startup off the ground is it's one of those activities that you're going to have to work yourself to death. But it's not, you know, it's not sustained. That's the type of thing where it's like, this is not sustainable. We can't run a company this way. If we really want to have sustained productivity, we need to do X. But in a startup, it's like sustained productivity of what? We're going to be out of business in two weeks if we don't do this thing or get this feature ready for the trade show which again is why most startups fail because you try really hard to do this thing it's you know it's a young man's game it's for a short period of time there's a clear thing we're going to try to do this thing and there's like there's a time gap on it you have exit strategies like it is not like i'm going to work at this company for 30 years and this is how i'm going to for 30 years i'm going to act as if i'm in the first six months of a startup like that's why i think you have to match the sort of culture and work ethic and amount of effort to the potential reward and to the expected time horizon. So I'm not saying it's it's like good in startups because you know startups grind up grind people up and spit them out as well. But that's what startups are. It is totally inappropriate for a company the size of Amazon. I think. Well, but you have to nip that in the bud early because it builds over time. Because like startups typically take on the 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 work culture of their founders. Like that, that is just, it's just what happens. It starts off as the founders, as they grow, the company still works the way the founders set it in motion to work either intentionally or not. And so like, I've been fortunate that, that my jobs have, you know, I've had crunch times here and there, but it's never been the kind of thing that I hear about from, from other people, like from some of these really horrible like game companies or companies like Amazon, it's never been that bad. Um, and, and part of that is because I've always stood up for myself. And I like and and I've always had I've always been at companies early enough to to have the ability to push back a little bit and to stand up for myself a little bit and you know it didn't always work but most of the time I was able to do it and this is the kind of thing that you can't just say well you know this one time we got to push really hard but then then we're gonna we're gonna be healthy again or then we'll hire more help or whatever like because in reality the the later time when oh we're going to we're going to do this temporarily but then we're going to fix it that time never comes 
because after you finish with this horrible death race, there's another one that comes up right afterwards. It, it but it does come. Like I think in the natural life cycle of a company is the founders that get the startup off the ground have to be workaholics, otherwise you don't succeed because that's the nature of the beast there. But then I think most companies settle into sort of fat, happy middle age where the company carves out places for people who just want to show up and, you know, punch the clock and do a boring job and not be too stressed about it or whatever. Uh, that's what happens when companies get big. That's what happens when most companies get big. This phenomenon of gigantic companies that are still run, quote unquote, like startups where they're, you know, hungry and working their employees to death is, I think, a fairly modern phenomenon. I guess not modern. I guess you saw, you know, sweatshops is the oldest, you know, the old slavery and sweatshops, the oldest form of like, we're just going to grind people up. But in the sort of in our lifetimes, the trajectory was if you were a startup at all, uh, you got out of that phase quickly and became a serious business where uh, everything was much more relaxed. And that's why smaller companies came and ate your lunch in the, uh, the late 90s and 2000s with disruption and all that stuff. Um, and now I think the new normal is what you're reacting to is like, isn't that what always happens? A, a disruptive startup is started by some workaholic, becomes successful because those guys work themselves to death. And that workaholic retains control of the company. Another phenomenon that, that is much more common now than it used to be retains control of the company and pushes that culture down on all the employees and never lets it go because they're paranoid that they're going to get their lunch eaten by the next little disruptive startup. Um, Apple is weird in that it started as a small hungry thing, got fat and happy, and then went from fat and happy with a giant, you know, Apple advanced research. What the hell is that thing called? Apple, Apple technology, ATG, Apple technology group. They were at the point where they had people doing like, you know, architecture astronaut stuff making up these grand plans like open dock and apple technology group atg thank you tipster um making these pie in the sky things and people who had jobs they're just going to be like an apple lifer and just hang around and and think grand ideas and maybe noodle on a product or something that might become a product someday and steve jobs came back and said uh we can't afford that we're going out of business cut down to the bone and turned it back into a workaholic culture so that is a weird you know apple has a weird history anyway that is a weird phenomenon but i think it's uh what you're reacting to, Marco, is the the Amazon, even like Elon Musk, PayPal, Tesla, that kind of model where you never you never let the company get out of startup phase because that's how you get disrupted. And you just no matter how big you get, even if you're as big as Amazon or Apple, the way you survive is by continuing to act as if you're in a startup. But the but it's not you're not anymore. It is an inappropriate environment to to grind people up like that because you can't have a company with 30,000 employees, all of whom stand to become multimillionaires by the next quarter if you just hit these these numbers. That's not going to happen, right? That time in the company's life has passed. It's weird that when Apple had the second phase, they made a whole bunch of millionaires out of stock options or whatever. But again, if you're using Apple as your model, okay, start a company in the 70s, be phenomenally successful, almost go out of business, but not quite, and then come, <laughs> rain, you know, that's a tough plan to pull off. So yeah, if you can almost go out of business and then become the biggest company in the world, you'll make a whole bunch of new millionaires, and Apple did. Um, and so those people probably don't regret working them, their fingers to the bone during that phase. But that, I think, is an aberration. I think the people working the fingers to the bone on Amazon are not going to get the same payoff for their uh, effort of investment. Right. And I mean, and this is actually, I mean, most startups that, that come out of, you know, our industry, you have to be like one of the first, I don't know, five people who work there to really see like a massive payoff in all likelihood. You know, I've had so many friends and so many companies, so many startups. I know very few of them who have actually had a meaningful payout from those stock options. Like it, it just doesn't 
like the numbers are so far against you <laughs> it's not even close like the the chance like chances are you probably won't make anything from your stock options and if you do make something from them it you know, you might make you know, maybe an extra, you know, in the in the tens of thousands of dollars, which is nice, but not necessarily worth working yourself to the bone for four years. It, it's it's it doesn't usually work out the way that they promise. And but it is like the entertainment business; like they know, like the people who who start startups, the people who fund startups, the people who advise startups, they all know that the this promise is there, and and they they sell people on this promise, and people come in thinking, man, I'm going to get stock options, and I'm going to make a ton of money. And the fact is, it doesn't usually work out that way, it, unless you unless you are one of the founders. You know, if you're one of the founders, you'll you'll own enough stock to make it work pretty well. But if you come in as employee number forty or whatever, you know, the chances are you're not gonna make a ton of money on that. But you're still gonna be in this environment where it is insane workaholism, and everyone is pressuring you to you know dedicate your life to the company in every waking hour. And by the way. I don't think I've ever seen a startup fail because it didn't execute quickly enough. Have you ever seen that? I'm sorry. A lot of them fail for that reason. But I, you know, I don't know if that means like you should have gone faster. Well, could you have gone faster? This gets back to what I was talking about with like, is it actually more productive at past a certain point? Because, yeah, you can do crunch and you can uh, for a certain period of time. But and it, you know you can go longer if you're younger or whatever. Let's not make any more analogies here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> at a certain point, you get massively diminishing returns and then negative returns. You're hoping that the life of a startup is short enough that you don't reach that point. Uh, but for big companies, on a sustained basis, like you know what, what you're getting is like uh, the, this startup fail. This startup was going to fail anyway because I can tell you the 17 reasons the startup was going to fail, even if they have executed it more quickly. It's always e- easy to find lots of reasons why a startup could fail. But startup is the one type of business where sometimes it really does matter. Oh, if you had actually been in that trade show and this other company hadn't, it could have really changed, you know, the, the history of your company. Or if this demo to an important investor had gone better, you would have got that round of funding and instead you didn't. Like that's the life of a startup. It always It's always balancing on a razor's edge of something or another. So I, I, I think that is a real thing happening then. Uh, it's just that no one really knows. You know, a lot of it is just serendipity. A lot of it is, is luck. A lot of it is right place, right time. A lot of it is things you can't control. But as far as I've been able to determine the successful strategy of startups, it's really, really difficult to to succeed as a startup with a super laid back attitude. Unless you start off with uh, basically unlimited funds or really long runway and a lot of money and or whatever, but for the most of the startups starting from zero, you really do have to work hard for a short period of time. And I think that the whole startup phenomenon viewed broadly is lots of small companies trying a bunch of ideas and finding out as fast as possible whether they work or not. Like that's the whole thing. And so try this didn't work. Okay. Let's try another startup. Try this didn't work or try to do the pivot where you're trying to pretend you're the same company where really you're basically just doing multiple <laughs> startups at the same time. Because um, you don't want to find out three years later that your idea doesn't work. You want to find out at ASAP because you can't crunch for three years. Yeah. You know, the thing to me is, in my personal opinion, the best approach is whatever your job may be, just work really, really hard coming out of school or in, in early on in your career, work really hard and establish yourself and get yourself to the position that you have made, you are making enough money that you are comfortable. That could mean $30,000. It could be 
$100,000, it could be $300,000, it could be $3 million, what, however you define comfortable, get to comfortable. And once you're there, then you really shouldn't have to do a death march ever again. And if you or, or you know, very rarely, I worked very hard for a very, well, to me, a very long time, given how old I am. And I'm now at a company that I rarely have to do a death march. I could probably work harder. I could probably make more money. I could probably even find a different job where I could work harder still and make more money still. But in the end of the day, we are comfortable. And I am able to pretty reliably put in about 45 hours a week and then come home to my family. And to me anyway, that's more important. I work so that I, I can live. I do not live to work. Well, and also you're working so that you can crunch at home now, because I the, I think the, also true. The best analogy for uh, the best the, the sort of second crunch, like if you're just out of school and you really you want to get your career established and you're working hard at your job, whatever it is, make sure you're not working too hard, make sure you're not being exploited. Then you have a kid and you realize, oh, you can have crunch time at home too, and it's called an infant, <laughs> or like you know twins, or even more like that's the type of thing where you feel again that. You know, your child is basically your startup times a million, right? You are willing to crunch for that at the whole point. Like if you decide to have children and this is what you're going to do with your life, it's super hard. And it's going to be a lot of work and there's crunch time in kids. And it's not when the kid is 15 years old, although depending on the kid, you know, whatever. But yeah, infants are hard and you will put in long hours and you will be, uh, you know, at the end of the rope, at your rope and going out of your mind. Uh, but that's what you're signing up for when you have a startup or have a kid or whatever. But I think for most people, that is a choice that they're making and they feel like it is well worth it to do for their kids. Not so much worth it to do it for Amazon that doesn't care about them um, and will never visit them when they're old. <laughs> so in summary, the best startup is a child. Or the worst startup, depending on your <laughs> point of view. Well, and also, I'd just like to point out, too, that, you know, and John, I, I still disagree with you on, on a lot of this. Uh, I don't I don't agree with the assumption in our industry that crunch time is required for a startup success because I have seen many counterexamples to startups that have succeeded that do very well uh, that don't do crazy crunch time burnout workaholism well let's let's put it let's put it this way it is it is a common characteristic of startups that succeed whether it's necessary or not you can say it's not really necessary it just so happens that a lot of the it's just a correlation not a causation in fact those ones are succeeding despite the crunch I'm willing to believe that. Uh, but you you have to say it's highly correlated. Like successful startups, they all have stories about crunch, right? So would you say it's sufficient but not necessary? I don't know. It, it seems <laughs> the correlation is pretty darn strong. Like I, I I totally think it's possible to succeed without it because again, I think even more important than how much you crunch is right idea, right place, right time, right talents. Like the thing, some things you can control, some things you can't control. Those are much more important than how hard did you work because the common. The common theme, and I think in all startups is, including the ones that fail, is a bunch of people working really hard. So it's not correlated with success. It's just like, if you're in a startup, this is the way they're done. I think what you're saying is like, if all the startups got like a big startup convention, they said, let's just all agree <laughs> that all startups in the entire world, we're not going to drive ourselves into the ground. Would they have the same ratio? I think they'd probably end up having exactly the same ratio of successes. And who the successes are may shift around a little bit but not in any significant way and it just it's just that like it's like a race like if everyone is when the race decided they were going to walk instead of run the race would be slower but everyone wants to get the finish line as soon as possible so they all run you know what i mean like you'd say i don't think it's necessary to run to have a race if, if we all just walked and we're calm 
and we just said there's you can't have both feet off the ground at the same time the the results of the race would be the same but it's human nature you you just want to run even if you know you're going to get tired faster i don't know this is a terrible analogy <laughs> yeah i it just it doesn't match what i've seen like I, I have seen like to me the the big crunch time is kind of like people who always talk about how busy and stressed out they are it's like like that it's like a voluntary take on of stress and it, it is it is almost always self-imposed and optional well but you see everyone else running don't you see everyone else running and you feel like you have to run too and again if you feel like well if they weren't running i wouldn't be running but they are running so i feel like i have to run the, the root question is would you actually be like if you could run the experiment if you got identical groups of people or something and like you said you guys aren't allowed to crunch and you guys are this gets back to the productivity thing wouldn't they be more productive if they had a good night's sleep but i think the the uh when for a young company there are events and and deadlines whether self-imposed or not that that are significant enough that can make or break the company it's just not true for a larger company and so by crunching you can temporarily increase your productivity so you are it's like you know juicing or taking you know steroids or whatever you are temporarily increasing your productivity knowing full well or maybe not knowing but you're going to find out that your productivity is going to fall off a cliff after a short period of time because the most important thing right now is who is ready in time for this trade show you know what honestly i've never seen that i i've never seen a company that had to rush to make a, a trade show or an investor meeting or anything where that was actually really going to be the decision. Like usually, either you have traction or you don't. Either your product is you know is rooted in a good idea and is to, and is get is finding an audience or it isn't. And usually, it doesn't come down to one date, one deadline, one meeting, one presentation. Not, not just one deadline, but like to use use your career tumbler as an example. Like you, it may not have been the crunchiest of crunches, but there was a time early on when you were worried about servers going down and you would get paged in the middle of the night or whatever. That's basically that's a work life balance that you would never accept now. But had you not been there to fix some MySQL problem in the middle of the night or whatever, and Tumblr got the reputation for the site that was always down. That could have really affected, uh, you know, Tumblr might not have taken off as there's lots of other sites that were similar to Tumblr and what, you know, the type of thing of like, oh, it's, you know, it, it has bugs or it's always down or it doesn't work right or the sign up, like, not that you were killing yourself to do it, but certainly you were working really hard during that time because there was only a few people and it's not like you had this giant staff of people to watch all the servers, it was you, right? That is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about like that you didn't sleep for seven days straight to make some trade show. Everyone's crunch is different. But during that time when it was a small group of people trying to keep this site that is growing incredibly fast up and running so that you could take advantage of the traction that you had, that was an important thing to do. And if you had not done that and said, you know what, uh, I'm going to ignore that page and I'm only going to work from nine to five and I'll, I'll bring the servers back up in the morning, that would have materially affected the prospects of uh tumblr success and probably would have got you booted out of the company because <laughs> that's like it's like look there's only a couple of us here you can't just say i'll fix the server in the morning because your work-life balance is important you have to do it and you felt responsible for doing it and you wanted to do it and you were invested in doing it and you did it and tumblr is successful but don't you think there's a connection between that uh, there is a connection but i think it's a relatively loose one like tumblr was taking off whether you know whether i had the site up or not and if i took an hour to fix the site or five minutes to fix the site didn't really matter. But but you couldn't come in. You couldn't come in the next morning and do it. You couldn't say, you know what? I'll look at that tomorrow. Sometimes we sometimes problems were around that we didn't even know about. Sometimes our monitoring system failed us and we weren't alerted to problems and things were down for hours. 
and it was fine. Like, I mean, like I, I always point to this example back then. Like, Flickr was down for like a whole four day weekend one time, like in in you know two thousand eight ish. A week later, everyone forgot. Yeah, I mean, tw- Twitter is a good example too, where they were down all the time. But I think that's after they crossed the hump. Like, you know what I mean? You don't know once you're on the other side of the hump. There's a certain inevitability that takes on. It's just that like when you're on the the near side of the hump, not the far side of the hump, you're never going to get over. You're never going to become the thing that that people talk about being down for four days unless you, in the beginning, have some minimum level of dealing with growth in a way that lets you just start, you know, taking off. Like, I mean, again, just think about how you worked. Was it all just a mistake that you were putting in those long hours and worrying about things? And if you had just known, if you had known more, then you would have just been like, just chill. Don't worry about it. Don't work such long hours. And the company would have been equally successful. Were you just running because you saw everyone else running? You're saying that you should have just been working from nine to five. And in the end, your sort of hard work and dedication to making sure things were up all the time was a foolish, foolish expenditure of energy. And you should have just like, if you had known then when you know now, you would have just worked from nine to five, uh, confident in the fact that the success of the company would have been equal. You could be right, but the bottom line is you ran because you saw everyone else running, and I think that will continue to happen. Most of the time, I did just work, you know, nine to five or you know whatever. It might have been like ten to seven or whatever, ten to six. But like you know, most of the time, that's all I did. I was not programming at home for Tumblr ever. Like that hardly that happened maybe twice, like ever, just because I had to quickly fix a bug or something. But like it, like that hardly ever happened. That was not at all normal. Um, most of the, for the most part, I maintained a very healthy work-life balance with tumblr i was you were sleeping next to your phone weren't you yes but that was a lot of that honestly was self-imposed stress and and that was mostly because we took too long to hire a sysadmin which was partly my fault because i kept saying you know what i still got this you know i mean it it was certainly partly my fault but but if you didn't have that drive that self-imposed stress don't you think that someone, be it David or someone else, would eventually get to the point of, you know what, you you either need to start sleeping with your phone or you need to hire someone to sleep with their phone. Like, if you didn't have that, if you weren't as as proud of your work as you are, then I think it would have caused problems. It's possible. I mean, you know, it's hard to know retrospectively, you know, what, what would have been different, you know, but... We we at Tumblr in those early days when it was me just me and David we did not have a culture of workaholism really. David pushed himself a lot harder than I pushed myself, but I wasn't really penalized for that for the most part. Um, you know he he would be thinking about it constantly because that's just David. You know he he would be thinking about anything constantly like whatever his whatever his work is the rest of his life he'll be thinking about it constantly. He's just that kind of person. But uh, but I'm you know I try to have a a a, a more separated balance between home and work and you know my side projects or my my family versus my my job or whatever so i think your scale may be calibrated strangely because the amount the amount of time and effort you put into your work now is probably still higher than most people who are in those fat and happy jobs not even close you, you i you, again i maybe you haven't spent enough time in the uh the fat and happy company to see exactly how little work some I, 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 <laughs> you're saying maybe you're not as big a workaholic as david but you have a a higher than average drive to do things. I mean, I I think Casey would agree on that. Like the amount of stuff that you have to do and the amount of stuff that you actually do 
you you need to be doing stuff. You need to have lots of things that you're doing and you work hard at them harder than you actually need to work at them. So I think your scale may be off a little bit. And I, I'm willing to believe that you don't work as hard as David because, you know, Tumblr is his thing and you were brought on, right? And so, you know, again, sort of, with yeah. the, the successful companies that are uh, founded by workaholics or whatever. But in the grand scheme of things, like, I mean, and, and again, it still gets back to your question, like, does that mean you had to? Maybe, maybe not. Like, you you can't run the experiment. You can't go back in time and say, I'm going to do Tumblr again, but I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to hire that system in earlier. I'm going to just have a laid back attitude and everything will be fine because really that's not what matters in the end. What matters is uh, we have the right idea. We have the right design. We have the right, you know, so many other things. We were, our timing was right. Uh, you know, the choices we made about what the product was going to, we made the right choices about product design stuff like there are so many things, you know, we made the right choices about when to take funding, when not to take funding. Should we, you know, you could ask the same thing like Mark Zuckerberg with the whole the tortured history of uh, Facebook and how so many companies tried to acquire it and how he said no and how that could have been a terrible mistake and how hard did he work and how hard did he work the people under him and all that other stuff. Uh, it's difficult to say, but, you know, whether it's necessary or not, it seems to be a characteristic of the startup that... Uh, it, it, kind of in the same way that it's a characteristic of the games industry and in the same way you could say that it's not necessary and it shouldn't be done but it is what we have now and to change it i think you have to change i don't know how you change it for startups for games industry you have to change the incentives or maybe you have to have workers that unionize or maybe you have to have that backlash that happened a little while ago with ea uh you know the ea spouses and all the EA employees getting complaining about getting ground up by the machine uh and I think this New York Times story about Amazon is part of that phenomenon, raising awareness about this issue among the pampered white collar workers, so the pampered white collar workers can have angry blog posts and write uh, <laughs> write a medium posts about it, just hiding Henry Ford. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's the system working. Our final sponsor this week is Hover. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. Go to hover.com and use promo code UNEVENTFULWEEK for ten percent off your first purchase. When you have a great idea, you want a great domain name that's catchy and memorable. Hover gives you exactly what you need to find the perfect domain for your idea so you can get started actually working on it. They give you easy-to-use, powerful tools to buy and manage domains so anybody can do it. And the support team is always ready if you need a hand. They are known for their no-wait, no-hold, no-transfer phone service. So if you want to talk to somebody at Hover, you can call them up. A real-life human being is ready to help. They pick up the phone, no-wait, no-hold, no-transfer. Plus, if you don't want to call anybody, they have great online help if you need it. In less than five minutes, you can find the domain name you want and get up and running. All you have to do is search for a few keywords, and Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there, from the nice old ones like .com, .net, all the way to the stupid new ones like .diamonds. And you can search <laughs> everything all at once. It is the best search I've seen for all these domains. If you've ever registered a domain name anywhere else, you know that it's usually a pretty unpleasant experience anywhere else you do it. You know, it's at best, it's ugly and confusing. At worst, you feel like you're being ripped off or it's a scam. Hover, I, I've never had these problems with Hover. I have used so many domain name registrars over the years. Hover, I've never had these problems with. Their site is respectful of you, the user. It doesn't try to scam you. It doesn't try to trick you. They, they do not believe in heavy-handed upselling or weird little you know confusing promotions, try to get you to buy something you don't need. They don't work like that. And their site is incredibly well designed, and it's easy to use. So you go in there, you you, you know, you got to buy something, you got to go to the control panel, whatever you want to do. It makes sense. It's nicely designed. It looks good. You, it's easy to use. You can figure it out. 
I even even sites that seem well intentioned to me. I've used I, I've used many record stores, as I said. Even the ones that seem well intentioned, their stuff is still ugly and confusing to actually use. Hover is both well intentioned and well designed and easy to use. It is so rare to find this. I've never found this combo besides Hover in in this business. Uh, it is great. So check out Hover. They even have email hosting if you need it. They have great solutions from simple forwarding for just five bucks a year, all the way to uh, full blown hosting starting at twenty bucks a year. Check it out. Lots of great options at Hover for registering domains, hosting your email, whatever you need to do. Go to Hover.com and use promo code UNEVENTFULWEEK for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks a lot to Hover for sponsoring our show once again. One more bit on workaholism before I move on, because I don't want people to think that workaholism is all bad. And I was thinking of, you know, the, the times that I have, uh, the various places that I've worked where I have, uh, I was thinking of one particular instance where I came home on a weekend uh, and it was a, a programming problem, database design programming combo problem that I had been working on all week and had, had come up with a solution that kind of worked, but I wasn't satisfied with it. And I think I woke up like on Saturday morning and I had a good idea for how to do it. I think I'd finally figured it out. And I just rewrote it all in a weekend. Um, Why does that happen? Like part of workaholism among the founders and among everybody else is that if you have a job that you love doing, if you love programming, you will find yourself thinking about during your idle time, again, walking the dog, taking a shower. Uh, And sometimes, you know, this is all pre-kids. If you, you know, if you don't have kids, again, if you don't have kids, you don't realize how much free time you have. Uh, so (laughs) enjoy, you know, youth is wasted on the young and free time is wasted on people with no kids. Um, (laughs) you actually have a lot of time, even if you're married, I was married at the time. Uh, but there is enough time for you to like to, to spend one weekend, you know, reasonable hours stopping for meals, not staying up late or anything, but just like, you know what, this weekend I'm going to do this thing. And why did I do it? I guess I was invested in the company. It was a small-ish company that had been bought by a larger company, but it was a bunch of people who were all friends. who were all working on a, a product and a thing that we really believed in. This is when I worked in the, the place that did eBooks and everything. And, you know, it was something that we all believed in and it was important to get this done. And, there, you know, there wasn't any sort of external deadline. There wasn't any reason this had to be done. I had already done it at work. I just had a better idea for it. And I enjoy programming. So what I bet, you know, getting back to the Marco lifestyle, what I did that weekend for fun <laughs> was I programmed. <laughs> Programming is fun if you're a programmer and you like programming. Was I a sucker for for doing work on the weekend? Uh, no, but it really has to be on your own terms. Like so, I think that's the difference. Where if you feel like you have to do this to keep your job, or you're being pressured to do it, or like the culture at work is making you put in hours that you don't want to work, or there's an expectation that you're going to do it on the weekend. No one had any expectation I was going to rewrite this perfectly good working thing that I had written during the week that I'm going to rewrite it all on a weekend because I had a better idea. I wanted to do it and it was fun. And so that's like the light side of this, where if you are lucky enough to have a job that you enjoy and your quote unquote leisure time activity on the weekend is to do more programming, even for your job that no one asked you to do because it will make you feel better. And you'll come in the next week and be like, finally, I can delete that crap that I wrote last week and replace it with this thing that I rewrote entirely in a weekend. And it's so much cleaner and so much nicer. And I have so much more confidence that it's bug free and it's easier to expand in these ways. Like that's a fun thing to do. If you're a programmer, again, we should all be lucky enough to have the type of job that we actually enjoy doing. It's I guess probably rare because how often do you work in a company that you feel that personally invested in? How often do you want to do that? The farthest I get from it these days is probably, I mean, I will find myself thinking about work problems during the weekend in the shower, drifting off to sleep. I just usually save those ideas until I go back into the office on Monday to work on them because I feel like, you know what? They get enough of my time. And really when you have kids, you (laughs) can't like if, 
you know, it's a it's a phase in life. Like, uh, what would you rather be doing this weekend? I I can't imagine. I guess the closest I got was doing my reviews, where I would carve out time to do reviews. But even that, I felt like, boy, if I wasn't getting paid for these reviews, I wouldn't have. I would have stopped doing them a long time ago, right? So there always has to be a balance. So anyway, I just didn't want to like make it seem like if you are working really hard at your job and bringing your work home with you, it's not always bad. Sometimes you're choosing to do it. And then it, and then it feels it feels better, even though in effect it's the same thing. Oh, you are you're basically doing unpaid work for the man on your own time. You're a sucker. Sometimes it's fun. Yeah, I agree. There's definitely been times that I've not been able to get a work problem out of my head, and the best way to get it out of my head is to get it out of my head and <laughs> and put it on paper, so to speak, and just do it. Well, I saying Marco cheats on, and Marco's version of this is that. When his boss lets him off for the weekend, sometimes he rewrites things and go just because it's fun. <laughs> of course, his boss is also him, but it's a different him. It's like the working during the weekend. And then it's like, you know what? I can rewrite this all and go. And then he comes in <laughs> and he's so you can tell your boss later. I rewrote it all and go over the weekend. It's awesome. It's like, oh, that was nice. You didn't have to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week. Harry's, Warby Parker, and Hover. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over They didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental Oh, it was accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental I don't even know if you did that on a weekend, but of course, time has no meaning in your world anyway. Yeah. Weekend, weekday, <laughs> until Adam enters school, then weekend to weekdays will suddenly have meaning again. Oh, yeah. No, I can't wait for that to begin because we had a nice routine going. By the way, I, I think that you you are probably overestimating how much I actually work, like time-wise. Well, nowadays, I know. But I'm just saying, like you, uh, let's put it this way. You put in more effort than I think I would put in if I was in your position. And I don't know, Casey, can, uh, do you think you, if you were in Marco's position in life, would you put in as much effort as he does on, on the various projects that he does, or would you slack off more? I don't. I honestly don't know. Half of me wants to say I would slack off 10 times more, and the other half of me says, I think you might be overestimating how much time Marco spends sitting in front of the computer. No, I mean, you, you guys, you are both, smart curious programmers you would get bored senseless if you weren't using your brain oh uh, yeah i'm not saying you're doing it like a, to be a magnanimous this is you know it's the same with all of us like your brain will eat itself if you don't give it something to do right like and, and it's like that's what how workaholics feel too like that elon musk feels exactly the same way he's like look if i not if i don't do if i don't do spaceships and electric cars my brain will eat itself i have to do this it's not like it's barely even a choice like that is the type of person they are i just feel like the that you have more I, I have a higher capacity for doing nothing than you do i think <laughs> honed over many many years like the idea like you said, like you know you're gonna go off on a vacation and sit on the beach and do nothing i'm i'm pretty darn good at that at this point right see i can't i can't do that i mean i'm going to the beach next week 
I'm planning, like, I'm bringing my laptop. Like, uh, the idea of going to the beach and doing nothing, that sounds awful. Like, I, I would I would enjoy about maybe two days of that. And then I'd be like, all right, let me, I got to turn my brain back on now. Yeah, I have, I have a much higher tolerance for it. I can go much longer. I, I agree that, I, you know, event, I couldn't do it, like, year-round because, I would you know, my brain would eat itself, too. Like, I have I would be building tiny machines out of sand, you know? Like, I would just be, have to be doing <laughs> something, right? So we're all like that to some degree. It's just a question of how, what kind of tolerance you have for it. And I feel like, like, I, it's part of it is being old where you're like, I did all the working hard stuff and I still do it. And, like, it just, like a, just a plain old boring 40-hour program or work week leaves me more like mentally tired and like the, the the beautiful thing about vacations is you can get away from all your responsibilities except keeping your children alive and feeding yourself right and just have 20 minutes to sit on a beach and just like just look at the clouds go by right and that 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 i feel like recharges me so that i can go back to my regular life um i don't think i could do it year round but as i get older my tolerance for doing nothing gets greater yeah, I um, I, I we've talked about this on the show. I used to hate going to the beach, which I only ever did a handful of times in my life. And as I've gotten slightly older, and Marco and I are the same age, um, I found that if you put some sort of tent-like object on the beach, so I'm not sitting in direct sunlight, and put a good book in my hands, I could do that easily a week. That being said, when I was at the beach, uh, what last month, um. I definitely spent a few hours programming toward the end of the, towards the end of the trip because I had an itch I decided I wanted to scratch and it couldn't get out of my head. Yeah, I don't think I've ever programmed on vacation, but I think part of that has to do with like the environment is not good for that because right you don't have your big monitor you could spread out like you talked about last week you're programming in a phone booth no there's a bunch of other people there there's a bunch of other people there and they want to go places and do things and kids are running around yeah that's too no I mean like for me like if I'm if I'm gonna be doing something with my brain on vacation usually that's when i will write um or you know I, like i'll do other things I, I won't program necessarily or i'll program very little uh, or i'll do some some kind of satellite project like the website uh but usually that's when i will write blog posts best is when i'm when i'm away because then i want to use my brain but i don't want to do any programming because i would prefer to just do it on my big nice home computer Yep. See, this is why I refuse to learn how to drink coffee and why I'm kind of glad I don't have a 90-inch monitor at home. goes in your mouth, Casey. Oh, that's the trick. Damn it. Um, I, I don't want to get to the point where I can't function until I've had a cup of coffee or it, or I get a headache or I get cranky or I just don't think that things feel right. I don't want that. So I'm glad that I don't like coffee. Um, and, and additionally, I'm glad that I'm used to a 15 inch laptop. I mean, I, no, I don't know. Right. You've just broken that analogy there. The coffee thing, <laughs> addiction to substances, I can see something, but you do there. I believe there is no physical addiction component to large screens. I'm pretty sure that it's not. <laughs> Is just merely a preference and a, and a convenience. It's like, you know, like if I get too used to not being half immersed in water all day, I'll want to be dry every time I go to sleep. So that's why I sleep outside in the lawn. It's like, come on, what are you doing? It's, My it's, point is, I, I don't feel, I feel only ever so slightly handcuffed by not having a second monitor when I'm developing. Whereas you feel completely neutered if you don't have a 25 plus inch display as you're developing. It, it's really convenient. 
It's like, you know, it's convenient to have a room that that fits your bed with more than six inches around all sides in the walls because then you can walk around the bed to get onto it. Yeah. Sure. You, you know, like, you, you, and it's like, I don't want to get used to that. I want to I wanna make sure my bedroom it just has one foot uh, alleys around the bed and I'll shimmy through it because if I get used to a bigger room, then when I go someplace else, I won't be used to it. Like, I think your analogy is breaking down there. Anyway, you should be leaning on the fact that I don't want to get, uh, I don't want to be tethered to a desk. I want to do my computing, like you said, sitting next to Aaron on the couch or whatever. Those are the advantages you should be playing off of laptops, not saying that really you want to uh, force yourself to use a 15-inch monitor, even though it's less convenient. So I think you're barking up the wrong tree with explaining why you <laughs> like laptops. I think there are reasons, but these are not them. Fair enough, fair enough. Speaking of, Casey, do you have, have you thought any more about your computer decision uh, that we talked about last week. Have you thought any more about that since then? Well, to be fair, that was all of three days ago as we record this. But... Preserve the illusion. It was last week. Go ahead. Oh, right, 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 right. It was easily a week ago, and I've thought long and hard. No, not really. I don't know. I've ca- the problem I've come to is I think all three d- potential machines, a Mac Mini, uh, a 5K, and a MacBook Pro, all three of and them. And a Mac Pro. <clears throat> no. Uh, all three of them, not four of them. All three of them have definite advantages. They really honestly do. And I can't figure out which which criterion I think is the most important. Is it having something that can move? Is it having something beautiful to look at? Is it having something that I can barely see that's stuffed in the corner that I only really use remotely or very rarely, in, you know, physically? And I just, I can't figure out which one I want. And I think some, a couple of people have said this on Twitter via feedback, but I think the, really what I'm going to do is I'm going to, which is what I had planned last week, um, is I'm just going to sit around, see what comes in in the fall with regard to MacBook Pro updates and potentially any other kind of update, and just see if that sways me one one way. Like, let's say for the sake of discussion that I decided I really wanted a 12 inch Retina Mac, and the MacBook One wasn't out yet. Well. You know, then fast forward, the MacBook One is out and all my problems are solved. Maybe there'll be some other thing, some feature that I'll really, really love in the new MacBook Pro or maybe even a new Mac Mini or the new 5K iMac. And I'll say, you know what? Darn it. That's it. That's for me. But sitting here now, I just, I really don't know. Well, first of all, as I said, like, suppose a new Mac Mini comes. It'll still suck. Like it'll still be a bad deal. It still won't still be a thousand dollars. It'll yeah. still be at least a thousand dollars for a good spec. It'll still not have very good options. You know, it, it like if you know if you look at the ones that we have today, uh, it's you know you got you max out at two cores. Uh, you can barely get an i seven. You max out at one terabyte built in, and only then if you do the fusion. Like it's it's like the options. You can't even spec out higher if you wanted to. Unless you you know get into like the iFixit territory of opening it up and putting your own crap in there, and even that's becoming harder and harder. It's ugh. the Mac Mini is is so, and I say this having one here and being very happy with it. But for your purposes, I think again only if it's going to be used as a server only. Does that make sense? I think thinking about it more as I did the edit, I was thinking about it more. I think what you should probably do is get a 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro again. And that's the most likely outcome. Because, like, the big thing is the way you work right now, like, if you work the way I work, where you always work in the same place in the house, where, you know, where you don't take a laptop on the couch and do real work, like, if you're if you were always working in your office upstairs, then get a 5K. Fine. Done. But 
because that isn't how you live, and, and you made a good point about like wanting to be with Aaron at night while you're working, that makes a lot of sense, and that's something that your home office can't offer you. So if that's the way you work at home or, or compute at home, then I think a 15 inches is probably the best option for that because, you know, for anyone else, like for for other people, for people who don't program for a living or for people who, you know, have lower needs, that was that'd probably be too big. You know, then in that case, I would say get the 13 inch Retina MacBook Pro, because for for most people, that is like the nice middle of the road, cover everything kind of computer for you. I'd say, you know, your needs are higher. Go for the 15 and I, I think the 15-inch MacBook Pro, or the 13-inch, but in general, like, the MacBook Pro slash MacBook Air range is the default option for if you don't know what your needs will be, just get one of those. And in your case, you don't you don't know what your needs would be. Like, if you knew what your needs would be and your needs matched my needs, again, get the 5K, done. But because that's a big unknown for you still, and... and even if it was firmly nailed down, it, it probably wouldn't line up much with my needs and with, with the way I, I use mine or the way John uses his. So, you know, because you don't work the way we do and you don't know how you're going to be working over the next four years, I would say just wait for the Skylake updates and then get the updated 15-inch. Yeah, that's the most likely outcome. Uh, the 5K, when we started the conversation last week, I did not even want to entertain the 5K as an option. But the more we talked about it, the more I thought, you know what, if I, if I dedicate myself to only being at my desk, that really does make sense. And to be, if, if I'm honest with you guys right now, you know, my current personal machine, which admittedly has a platter hard drive, which obviously changes whether or not it's usable, um, as compared to my work laptop, which has an an SSD, but my personal machine today the Wi-Fi has been off for months, and it's been connected via Ethernet because I it's and it's a 15-inch MacBook Pro because I never move it because I always will just grab my work computer because whether I want to work or play, it has everything I want on it. And so, if we can get over the separation of church and state, if you will, I'm going to have this laptop, my work laptop, pretty much regardless. And even if I left this job and got a different job, or even if I left this job and worked for myself, I would probably end up getting a laptop regardless of whether uh, of whatever other computers I have at home. So there is a compelling argument for the 5K iMac, as much as I really don't want to entertain it because I think it's ridiculous and it's a stupid piece of furniture. Yeah, you got to do what I did with my uh, HDTV and cut out a piece of cardboard the size of the 5K iMac and stick it in where you're going to put it in your house and then and then see like does this block the morning sunlight that i like uh when i'm eating my breakfast <laughs> does this look ugly does is it visible from the street and it looks weird like you know pieces of furniture that big you have to figure out if there's a place for them that won't mess with your uh feng shui or however you pronounce it cool john when are you departing tomorrow tomorrow morning yep you're going to send me all sorts of pictures of probably, and I'm going to be super jealous, and I'm going to hate you. We'll see. Can you can you have your family take pictures of you and then send those to us? Oh, God, that'd be the best. They don't take, but I'm the only person who takes pictures of anything. It's so bad that now when we go on like vacations with, with uh, the rest of my family, like my parents and sister and brothers, they just let me take pictures for everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> Which basically means that there's a lot of pictures of my kids and a lot of pictures of my wife and not a lot of pictures of me and a medium amount of pictures of everybody else. 